So before we start, I'd like to open with prayer. Our Father, we're just so thankful for another beautiful day. And we're so thankful that you have given us your word, that as Christians we can study and grow and learn from what you have in store for us and what we need to do to uh, please you, Lord. So I just pray that as we continue with Ruth 3, that you will bless the words that the ladies will learn, and we will see what you had in store for Ruth today. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, so you have your themes, the midnight meeting and waiting on God. <clears throat> the story we are studying in the book of Ruth is deeply rooted in the culture of the Old Testament. From the very beginning of the Old Testament scriptures, when God began to work with his people Israel, he often he always reminded them of two things. He coveted them. First, he always told them that they were a special people. And second, he always told them that they had a special place. He had ordained for them. Even today, that's true. There's a special place called Israel at the very center of everything that is going on in the world. And there is a people, the Jews, spread throughout every nation. With that in mind, we come to the third chapter of the book of Ruth, remembering again that this is a continuation of God's promise of his people concerning a place and a people. Now, in order for us to understand this lesson, there's two words that we need to explain. The first word is lever, meaning husband's brother or brother-in-law from which we get the word Leverite. In the Old Testament, in order to preserve the people of Israel, the brother of a man who died without children would marry the deceased man's wife, and the first child born in that relationship would take on the name of the man who had died. This was known as a Leverite marriage. If you loved your brother, you would want his name to go on. If you loved Israel, you would want the people to continue on. If you loved God, you would want his people to continue to testify that God will not forsake his people. Therefore, it was considered that if you love your brother, you will perform this duty. So in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 6, this was the instruction for the Jews. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will secede to the name of his dead brother that this name may not be blotted out of Israel. So God provided for them that even though the man died, the name would never be blotted out of Israel. 
he planned this for them by this Leverite marriage. The second word is Goel, translated Redeemer. The Goel was a near kinsman who was to act as the Redeemer of persons of property. So we find this in Leviticus 25 to 28. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But he, if he is not able to have restored to himself, that what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee, and in the year of Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. The year of Jubilee happens every 50 years in the Jewish uh, calendar, and it, it only is applicable, applicable when Israel is um, owning the land. Now they're scattered, so now you're not seeing the year of Jubilee. But everything was there and will be there so that, these, that the Jewish nation, Israel, will be restored and they will have their land. Every Jewish family had a piece of property that was theirs by virtue of their inheritance. And the scripture taught that even if a person became totally poor and lost everything, he had a member of the family was supposed to buy that property back on his behalf. So when a person lost his property, one of the family members, the Goel, the Redeemer, would buy it back so the family could not lose its inheritance. It was a test of love for the brother, Israel, and God. If you loved your brother, you performed the duty and had a testimony of being faithful to the redemption, to the redemptive work of Israel. This law of love is the basis of Ruth chapter 3 and chapters 4. This love obligated Naomi to counsel Ruth, motivated Ruth to obey, and encouraged Boaz to take the responsibility as Goel. The grace provided throughout chapter 2, Ruth 2, 2, 10, and 13, enabled them to fulfill what God asked of them in chapter 3. Grace was demonstrated through Boaz the Redeemer, Ruth 2.13. Fulfillment of the law was the fruit of that grace. This anticipated the internal redemption, the grace that Messiah, our Redeemer, would provide. So just as the Levar perpetuated the race of the people, the Goel perpetrated the property and the place. So that's how we see Boaz. Boaz is going to uh, be the Goel and, and take care of the people and the, the property and the place. Now, let's look at the third chapter of the book of Ruth. That's a lot to absorb. But so now we're going to start with the plan. Since Boaz came into Ruth's life, Naomi has been a different person. Her concern no longer is to herself. Now it's to Ruth. Just, just like you would be for your children. You would take your concern off of yourself and put it to your children. Naomi had no hope for herself. 
but she had great hope for Ruth. So she launches a plan to get Ruth and Boaz together. The plan is in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I seek security for you? Shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? In other words, don't you want me to help you just a little bit? Don't you want me to do this for you? Help you get this relationship going? Naomi didn't wait for an answer. Instead, she told her daughter-in-law what to do. Now we're going to the preparation, and that's found in verses 2 to 5. Now Boaz, whose young women you, are, you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing tonight at the barn. Therefore, wash yourself, put on your best garments, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to this man at this time. Wait until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she said, she being Ruth said, All that you say to me, I will do. Naomi is hatching a whole matrimonial plan here. She looks more closely at, the proce- at this process of preparation. Now, Naomi knew the culture of her time. Naomi knew exactly what was going on. Boaz was a farmer, and he was finishing the harvest. That meant that every night after sundown and into evening hours, the workers would bring all the grain they had harvested and lay it out for the animals to walk on or thresh. Then that grain would come out of the husks. Then the, hus- the, the workers would take the threshed grain and they would go to a high spot and they would take the grain and throw it up in the air and the, the chaff would blow away and the, the larger grain or the heavier grain would fall to the floor. In Israel, around 2 o'clock p.m., a west wind generally blows, and that's why they did it in the afternoon and in the evenings, because there was usually always this west wind that did it, and that way they could do their winnowing. This final process was a celebration as they got the grain ready to sell, store, or mill. Now, Naomi knew that this was Boaz's night to winnow, So she told Ruth that he will be there, and here's what I want you to do. She wanted Ruth to do three things. In Scripture, well, she wanted Ruth to do three things. She wanted Ruth to wash herself, to anoint herself, and put on her best clothes. In Scripture, the outerwear reflects inner faith. In this regard, we see that sackcloth represented repentance and mourning, that you'll find in Genesis 37:34. Soft clothing represented royalty, Matthew 11:8, and fine linen symbolized righteous deeds in Revelation 19:8. So clothing played an important part. Ruth was a childless widow seeking a kinsman redeemer to perform the duty of a Levite marriage. She believed God's word 
and represented her faith in her attire. She lived and prepared in light of that promise. As a gleaner, she had to be prepared to, to show that she was ready to work in the field. So she would have worn different clothing. Now she was appearing to Boaz as a woman desiring to be wed. So again, she had to take off her clothing that she was wearing, which represented mourning and, and working, and take those off and go and put on her best clothing. If she would not have, she would have been saying basically, I'm only begrudgingly going through with this and don't really expect to be redeemed, blessed, or helped. Now, Naomi also advised Ruth to wash, thereby expressing to the Goel that her outward appearance reflected her inner purity. The priest had to wash in the ceremonial laver before he could enter the holy place in the tabernacle. And that's in Exodus 30:20. This was a symbol of spiritual cleansing before he came into the presence of the Lord. In Isaiah 1:16:44, wash yourself, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, Naomi also said to Ruth, anoint yourself, be consecrated for service, set apart for service, like the priests with perfume, like the oil of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit of gladness. Ruth was testifying that she was set apart for service as a wife. Naomi's final advice to Ruth Put on your best clothes. In other words, be clothed for honor. Wear the shawl or the mantle. In Ruth 3.9, you'll read that. These clothes were an outer garment that would demonstrate her modesty and cover her appropriately. She was honoring Boaz by wearing her best clothes. Ruth dressed herself to intimate that Boaz would be getting the best that she had to offer of her life in union to him the best of her heart, the best of her ability, and the best of her very being. This provides us a great encouragement to be cleansed in Messiah, consecrated to Messiah, and clothed with Messiah. Only in him are we giving our very best as a response of faith to the grace of the Redeemer. So after Naomi had washed herself, anointed herself, dressed herself, she was ready. So now we're going to look at the presentation. In the next few verses, we see Ruth's willingness to, get, to do something that seemed quite illogical. Remember, Ruth was a Moabitess. Ruth had no idea of all these Jewish ceremonies and, and understanding of this, but she was quite willing to do this, even though she was not a Jew. So in obedience to her mother-in-law, the one God had put over her, she does the illogical thing and make, takes the oath that we read in verse 5. She says, all that you say to me, I will do. She took Naomi's word as if it were a word from God. Then she obeyed all the instructions. In verses 6 and 7, we read, 
So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed. After Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful. Now he was not drunk. His heart was cheerful because he was content. He was happy. He necessarily did not do the winnowing. His workers could have done it. But he was there to, to be present uh, to protect his grain. So he wasn't drunk. He was happy and contented. And he went to lay down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came and softly uncovered his feet and laid down. Now, there was not much privacy here. But this was the custom. Now, once Boaz had laid down, Ruth came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. This took initiative and boldness on Ruth's part. Uncovering his feet reminded him of his moral obligation and duty to redeem, to redeem a relative. A relative who refuses to perform a Leverite must remove his shoe and bear his foot. So she was uncovering him, his feet, so that he would know basically why she was there. And so he had a choice he could have made at that point. This whole procedure was to get him, being Boaz, to do what was expected. Uncovering his feet, by doing so, Ruth was sub, subtly, subtly letting Boaz know that she was here on spiritual business. She was widow and childless, and she was giving Boaz a subtle hint of his responsibilities. Hey, guy, here I am. Are we going to do this, you know? So it did take a lot of courage on his part. And then, remember, Naomi said he'll tell you what he will do, whether he or another will redeem you. Is this an impropriety? No, no, not at all. Boaz had made the first overtures in being especially gracious to Ruth during the harvest. It was now her turn to respond. Besides Boaz's personal interest, he had a biblical responsibility as a goel to redeem Ruth. This type of boldness was Ruth exhorting kindness in him. By uncovering the feet, she was acting in faith and obedience. This principle is seen throughout scripture. As Moses had to grab the dangerous snake before it became a usable staff, that was in Exodus 4, 2-5. Like Moses, Ruth had to take the initiative in order to prove the righteousness of her calling. This faith is also seen in the New Covenant, where we see the bold faith of one touching the hem of Jesus and touching his garment to be healed. And that's in Matthew 9, 20 to 22. Now, this is just a sideline. I may have said this before. I don't know. The hems of the garments were not just for tucking in and, and not having fraying. The, the more substantial in wealth you were, the more ornate the hem was of your gown. I just thought that was interesting. <clears throat> this sounds as though the woman was proposing, the woman being Ruth, proposing to the man that she is initiating this thing. Why would she do that? Why would Ruth take the initiative? Because if he is to be the kingdom redeemer, 
he cannot initiate the, the uh, situation, the relationship. First, he probably never thought it could be God's plan for him. After all, he was an older man while she was a young woman. Second, there was, some, there was somebody else closer to her than he was, so she, under the direction of Almighty God, had to let him know that if it was permissible, so she took the initiative. And now we have the proposal at midnight, the discovery. The moment of excitement comes in verse eight. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. I guess he would be startled. It's midnight, and he wakes up to find a woman laying at his feet. He was there to protect the grain. He wasn't there expecting a woman to be at his feet. <clears throat> so let's read verse 9 here. We have to read this. I have a cold, uh, just a cold, and I'm getting over it, but I didn't want to hand anything out to anyone uh, since I have that cold. I didn't think that would be right. Verse 9, he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. <clears throat> so Boaz in verse 9 asks who are you Ruth answers I am Ruth she doesn't say I am Ruth the Moabitess she has dropped that like she had every other time she puts that aside because now she has become a part of God's covenant plan of his people. She says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. She's looking at this as a whole new beginning. She's following the counsel of her mother-in-law and saying the right thing at the right time. There's an unwritten question to Boaz that is not in the text, but we know it's there because the answer is there. His second question after he he asked, who are you, must have been, what do you want? Ruth offers an amazing response that he wouldn't understand apart from our cultural studies of the Old Testament. She says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. This in an Old Testament expression for taking care of them. I have a note here. I'm sorry, I lost it. Well, I don't. <clears throat> here Ruth has courage and boldness when it matters in obedience to God's will. First, Ruth came under the protective wings of Jehovah God. Then God gave her Poaz, and she became under the protective winds of Boaz, her redeemer. She's asking Boaz to cover her, to, in other words, um, to take his garment and cover her, just as God covered her under his wings. Now she's asking Boaz to do the same 
for her to take her as his bride. So the proposal has taken place and Boaz now understands what is going on. He woke up. Notice what Boaz did. The first thing Boaz did was to acknowledge her. Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. He made her feel very comfortable in the situation. This was awkward for Ruth. After all, she had done a very illogical thing, especially for someone who had no background in the Jewish law. But he put her at ease. He blessed her. He said, Blessed are you, Ruth. Then he affirmed Ruth. Then he said a wonderful thing about her. You have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. Then he assured Ruth. Notice verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. In this very tense moment, he promised her that he would accept her, be there for her, and she had nothing, nothing to be afraid of. And then he accepted Ruth. Boaz continues, I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town known that you are a virtuous woman. Proposal accepted. She said, will you? He said, I do. Now back in verse 4, when Naomi was instructing Ruth, she said, Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and that you shall go in and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Now look at verse 11 and see what happened. He said, Do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. What a story. A midnight meeting. A marriage made in heaven. Remember, Jesus Christ is our Kingsman Redeemer. And, and I love these words. They just meant so much to me when I found them. Um, did he suffer and die to become our Redeemer? No. It's actually the other way around. Before Jesus Christ suffered and died, he was the Redeemer. He was born the King of Jews. He did not die to become our Redeemer. He died and rose again because he is the Redeemer. I found that precious. I just found that precious. It gives me goosebumps when I read it. So now we think, oh, finally, everything's in order. We're going to have um, a marriage. Nothing to worry about. Looks like it's a done deal. Going to live happily ever after. But there's an oops. And their marriage will be put on a short pause. And we're going to look at the next passages because here they're waiting on God. Something that I'm sure a lot of us find hard to do. I know I do. I can be very impulsive at times and I just want to help you. And without thinking or consulting or praying with God or consulting even family, I will just go and do. This is not good. This is not always good. It's good to help, but not always to be impulsive. In the book of Ruth thus far, we have observed people waiting all through the story. 
I'm certain Elimelech and his family waited for a while in Bethlehem to see whether the famine would be so severe that they would have to leave. And after it appeared that the famine would continue, they left and went to Moab. And while they were there, Elimelech died, the two sons died, and the women waited. They watched and waited. We're not told what happened, why the boys died, we don't know. But then they waited some more. In fact, scripture tells us that they waited 10 years while everything was upside down in their lives. And finally, Naomi went back to the city that she had left years before. This story has a bit of a complication that will require yet more waiting. Why? Because another man is involved in the plot. In verse 12, Boaz says to Ruth, Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remember, Boaz has chosen specifically because he was related to Naomi and Imelech. He was a relative. That was why Naomi was so excited when Ruth came back and told her who she was gleaning, whose field she was gleaning in. And as far as Naomi was concerned, Boaz was the one. He was the one that was going to be their goel. The meeting had gone well. Everything that Ruth had been told to do, she did. And Boaz couldn't have responded more positively. But all of a sudden, when everything looks like it's going to be perfect, and when we think the ending is going to be happy, and the story is over, we are told that there is another kingsman who is closer relative, therefore has a claim on Ruth. By all laws of the Old Testament, Boaz could not intervene if there was still one living who was a closer relative to Ruth and Naomi. So he insisted on allowing the man with the closest relationship to decide whether or not he wanted to be the kingsman redeemer. While Boaz is waiting, and it's obviously isn't going to be for a very long time, we need to look at some principles that emerge that we don't want to miss. Boaz is waiting to determine God's will. Notice, first of all, that while Boaz is waiting on this matter, he proposes to Ruth. In verse 13, he says, Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. This is really the first strong and aggressive statement from Boaz. Up until this time, all thought of marriage has been on the part of Naomi and Ruth. Now, all of a sudden, Boaz is getting into the picture. He has finally figured this out, and he bids Ruth to stay there at the threshing floor for the night. Apparently, since Boaz was aware of a near, nearer kingsman, he didn't want this kingsman to know anything about Ruth. He is going to find out about it himself, but he doesn't want to alert his kingsman. So he will tell Ruth to be very careful that she does not make herself known to anyone as she is leaving. Boaz doesn't want to give this kingsman any advance notice. Why? Because he's in love with Ruth. While waiting, Boaz not only proposed to Ruth, he protects her. 
Notice in verse 14, so she lay at his feet. Laying at his feet shows humility and pureness. She lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it known that the women came to the threshing floor. First and foremost, he wants to protect her safety. He doesn't want her going back home in the middle of the night. But even more than that, he wants to protect her reputation. He wants to make sure that no one says anything about the woman that is not true. She is not to go home on her own in the middle of the night. She is to stay to enjoy the protection that he would provide for her until morning. And when she does go home in the dim light of the dawn, she is to be careful to keep her visit a secret. Boisk is concerned that there could be some misunderstanding about this meeting. Leon Morris, who is a great commentator in the Old Testament scriptures and a wonderful scholar of the Old Testament language, quotes the Mishnah in which it is noted that a man suspected of having a sexual relationship with a Gentile woman was ex excluded from performing the Leverite marriage with her. Boaz had not been ungodly with this woman, but he didn't want anyone to suspect anything that would jeopardize his opportunity to enter into his kingsman relationship with her. So Boaz truly was protecting her. Boaz knew the law. While waiting, Boaz protected, Boaz provided for Ruth. Notice, third, that while Boaz is waiting to find out about the other man, he provides for Ruth. Oftentimes, when we wait, we feel paralyzed. Uh, I know some people who are waiting for the return of the Lord, and they are paralyzed. That's all they do. They just sit and worry. You cannot do that. We are to occupy. We are to be busy. We are to be in prayer. We are to obey God's word, but we are not to sit and wait. We are to pray and make our petitions known, but we are to continue on to do what the Lord wants us to do. <clears throat> Boaz gave her a large amount of grain. He told her to remove her shawl, and he put in um, six ephods. I believe that's 60 pounds of grain in her shawl and sent her back to Bethlehem. Now remember it's dark and she has to be quiet and not be seen as she goes back. So, they, so he sends food home to Naomi to show that Ruth had done, to show what Ruth had done and to honor her. And he also did it to honor Naomi. Sometimes God calls us to wait for certain things, and we are not normally called to wait for everything. So while we're waiting on one thing, God can energize us in some other areas. Please note that while Boaz waited, he worked. There were things he did while he waited for this matter to be sandaled. Naomi is waiting also. She's back at home. She's not knowing what's going on. She's, you know, she put this plan in motion and she's sitting back there. I'm sure worried. I would be. I'd be thinking what's going on. Hopefully she was in prayer. It doesn't say that, but I'm sure she was. 
and she wanted to know what was going on. I mean, Naomi couldn't call her from the, thresh from the floor. I mean, she didn't have a phone. So she had to wait. So watch what happens in verse 16 and 17. When Ruth came home and Naomi asked, Is that you, my daughter? Then Ruth told her what Boaz had done for her. These six ephods of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now remember in Ruth 1, 21, Naomi said, I left full and I came back empty. Remember that? Well, now she is full and would remain full. She is not going to be empty again. The same with us. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee we will never be empty again. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, with God's love. As Naomi greets Ruth, the question, is that you, Ruth, most likely is a Hebrew way of asking, how did it go? Tell me what happened. Then she sees the barley that Boaz sent. Boaz has treated her and Ruth kindly, with respect and with dignity. Then the mother-in-law gets all the good details about what happened, but she had to even wait to find out. Sometimes we have to wait to determine what the will of God is. We do that through study, questions, experiences, circumstances. So we should look carefully at the last verse of the chapter. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. We're talking about Ruth 3.18. So now we have Ruth waiting to do, God's bill, to do God's will. Ruth was waiting to determine it. Naomi was waiting to discover it. Now Ruth had to wait until she could do the will of God. Naomi said, sit still, my daughter. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Sit still, my daughter, until you know how this matter will turn out. I was intrigued by Warren Wiersbe's comments on the verse. He said, I confess that waiting is one of the most difficult things for me to do, whether it is waiting for a table at a restaurant or waiting for a delayed flight to take off. I'm an activist by nature, and I like to see things happen on time. That's probably why the Lord has arranged for me to wait many times, because he is trying to teach me how to be patient. Warren Wearsby said three scriptures help him remember the importance of waiting. They are sit still, Stand still and be still. Sit still. We just saw that in Ruth 3.18, where Naomi tells Ruth to sit still. Stand still. That comes from Exodus 14.13. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again, no more forever. Remember the story? The children of Israel had left Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land. The Red Sea was before them when somebody said, the Egyptian army is just over the rise and they are bearing down on us. What are we going to do? There's no route of escape. So Moses gathered them together, looked them in the eyes and said, let me tell you what we're going to do. Stand still. 
There was never a time in the history of Israel when they wanted to run more than they did at that very moment. But Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And then in Psalms 46.10, be still. This command is really hard for us. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. To be still is a wonderful antidote for a restless spirit. The Hebrew word translated be still literally means take your hands off. Take your hands off of it and relax. Sometimes when everybody is impatient, everything is coming unglued, and the frustration level is high, we need to withdraw from it all and draw our strength from Almighty God. In other words, sit still, stand still, and be still. Boaz was busy working for Ruth, and Naomi was confident he wouldn't rest until it was done. So she said to Ruth, Sit still, my daughter, and see what will happen. While we wait on God, we can do so with confidence. And that's where we leave Ruth today. We leave Ruth waiting, waiting to know God's will. And we will have Morgan telling us about that in chapter four. And I hope that I've enjoyed teaching you today. And I hope that you were blessed by this lesson. Thank you so much.